All right, grab your Bibles if you've got them. Uh, we're going to be in uh, the book of Malachi today, starting a new book. This is the uh, last book in the entire Old Testament, which means it's the uh, easiest way to find it is actually to find the book of Matthew and then go backwards for one book if you're looking for it. <clears throat> Otherwise, you may get lost a little bit. Uh, this is our first time to preach through this portion of God's holy scriptures. It's a portion called the prophets. There are 17 prophetical books and they are divided into two sections. The first section is the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And that is called the major prophets simply because they are longer and they are broad in their focus of what they, they deal with. Uh, Malachi, our book today, is the 12th and the last of the minor prophets. Uh, and these are called minor because they are shorter. They are narrowly focused on either a, a geographical area uh, or a, a small central idea within each one. This book was, was written around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. I know some of the, you women had been uh, doing a study in the fall over that period. And so we're talking the 5th century B.C. And uh, as we go through this, I think that you're going to find, despite this disputing between God and his people throughout this book, I, I think you're going to find that it is full of hope for all of us who live in this broken world that is full of all sorts of mess and sin. And so the, the people who God is speaking to in this portion, you need to understand, are a bit disillusioned. And, and by that I mean this, they, they know the promises of God. <clears throat> they are uh, aware of it. They're not ignorant of it. But what they find is that their personal experience has been quite different from what their expectations of what God was going to do are. And it's going to become clear to us real quick that their hearts have grown cold towards God. And as a result of their hearts growing cold towards God, we're going to see that they, they've started to assimilate into the culture around them, forgetting God, or at least pushing God off to the margins of their life where he has no real impact, no real place. Uh, and so we're going to see here uh, in this book, uh, it's going to be six disputes where God or people speak and the other responds to it between God and his people. And we're just going to jump right into the first one this morning. So if you've got your Bible... You're in Malachi. Follow along. We'll be reading the first five verses. <clears throat> the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may, rebuild, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyeballs shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. The grass withers, the flower fades. <clears throat> Let's pray. God, you alone are good. You alone are worthy of the praise of every soul who has ever lived. This morning, we have worshipped you in many ways. And as we seek to understand your word now, we continue to worship you. Grant us focus. Grant us a love for your word. Grant us wisdom to apply what is spoken through Malachi to our own lives, to our own hearts. Not because it is easy, but because it is true. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So it's, it's interesting. We, we tend to gloss over a lot of these things, but it's really interesting there in verse 1 that, that God uses the name Israel for his people here. I know you see this a thousand times in Scripture, but uh, it's interesting here because it's been quite a long time since God gave that name to his people. A lot has happened since then. You see, 300 years before Malachi, for us to get our heads around that, think 1700s is kind of the equivalent, but 300 years earlier, the 10 northern tribes of Israel had been defeated, and the Jewish people were assimilated into the nation of, of Assyria. In the south, it wasn't a whole lot better for God's people. Uh, Judah had been defeated, they'd been exiled off to the, the land of Babylon, and yet by the time of Malachi, having been set free by the decree of Cyrus in 539 B.C., some of them had returned to Jerusalem, some of them had returned and, and been building the temple. It was a, a small group at this point, and you've got to get your head around that. You, we tend to think of God's people as this massive group, but at this point, it's just a tiny little remnant, and it wasn't people from all the, the tribes even. It was a, a bit like using the name Guns N' Roses during that era when only one guy from the band was actually still in the band, Axel, Axel Rose, right? But still, they went by the same name. And so here, though, you know, God refers to his remnant people with this name that he gave them, the name Israel. We also see right here from the start in verse 1 this term oracle. The oracle of the, Lord, of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. It's a, a strange Hebrew word, Massah, uh, which is translated oracle here. It's, it's strange because it includes this sense of, of carrying a burden, something heavy, something uh, of that nature. And, and when it comes around to what that means, it, it tends to, to come with a harsh correction afterwards, right? Uh, that's the idea that's, that's expected here. It's, it's, it's like when a parent calls across the, the living room, you know? Or across the house. Everyone in the living room now. Nobody heads to the living room wondering, I wonder if mom made us cupcakes. That's the idea here. No, you're you know, you're scanning your memory at that moment, thinking, Oh, what did I do? Does she does she know about the lamp? Did my report card get here? Uh, you know, there you're you're going through expecting some bad news. Or, or it's like uh, your boss or, or the dean or maybe General Martin, I believe is his name here in town, you know, sends a message saying, you know, I, I want you in my office in 10 minutes. You're, you're not expecting good news in this situation. And, and I want you to understand this because that's the kind of introduction that it is being given to this book. That, and that means that we should be expecting some harsh correction to come from the mouth of the, of the Lord in this situation. That's not what he does here at first, though, is it? You see what God says here. He says, it says, God, God says, I have loved you. Huh. I've loved you. And before we get into what God's really saying here, there's a lot to be learned by us here. When, when we approach someone whose life might be in shambles, when a brother or a sister in Christ whom we care for is making terrible decisions, when their life is a mess as a result of sin, as a result of rebellion, as a result of foolishness of all sorts in their life, I, I know we have this temptation that right from the start that we want to sit down and tell them, you know, point out everything here. You did this and you did this and you did this. What did you expect was going to happen? And, and yet that's precisely the kind of thing that God could do here, and yet he doesn't. There's, there's a place for that. There is, to, to point these things out later. 
You know, if, if someone can't see what they've done in this situation, but more often than not, they do see it. And, and so there's wisdom in simply helping them remember, first and foremost, that, that God has loved them. Uh, Ian Duguid uh, said to this end, he says this, he says, Only when we know the Lord's love for us will we be drawn truly to repent of our sins and hate them, rather than merely hating their consequences. And so God tells them, I have loved you. We, we, we then see their response there, right? They, they say, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? If, if anyone, you know, if you tell someone that you love them, this is most definitely not the response you want to hear from them. You know, when a, a husband tells his wife, I have loved you, you, you might expect her to respond with, I love you too, or, uh, you know, I know you have. Even, even thank you would be a better response to this than what we see here in this text, you know? Th- those of you who are married, you, you know that if you tell your spouse, I have loved you, and their response is, how have you loved me? Things are not going well. Um, because what's being communicated here is, I don't believe that you have loved me. I don't see it. I don't feel it. I simply do not believe those words mean anything. And that's precisely what the people of God are saying to him here. Which raises that question, you know, how do we measure love? How how do the Israelites measure love? God's people here, the Israelites, they look at their situation, and and they simply believe this, that, that God, who is sovereign, simply cannot love me if my life looks like this. You know, after being in exile, the, the people of, of God are they're back in their land. That's a good thing. The temple's rebuilt. That's a, a wonderful thing. And yet they find themselves living under the authority of, of the nation of Persia. They find themselves financially oppressed, and, and they see all these various sufferings when they expect it to be triumphant. And, and so they simply don't feel loved by God. Neglected, yes. Uh, abandoned, certainly, ignored, absolutely, but loved? No, they don't feel loved. And what we're going to see throughout this whole book is that this has affected their relationship with God. They have no interest in obeying God. They have no reverence in their worship for God. That's the result of this. Uh, What about you? What about us? What about our lives? You know, be honest with yourself for a minute. Do Do you interpret whether God loves you or not through the lens of suffering and disappointment in your life. You come to this conclusion, you know, God, you you can't possibly love me because my spouse and I are fighting all the time or or, or seemingly endless struggles and and the call to to parenting. Maybe it's just, you know, constant loneliness, wondering when was this going to end or or mental or physical or, uh, you know, medical distress of some sort. Maybe you just expected something different from the Christian life. See, our, our disappointments, we, we often hold up, you know, exhibit A as this evidence for why God must not love us. And, and that's Israel here. That's what's going on. They, they simply don't feel love, and so they utter these bitter words back to God. How, God, how have you loved us? So maybe you've felt the same way. Maybe it's not that you don't feel love so much as you simply don't feel any joy or excitement to know that God loves you. Not like you, you once felt. It's, it's grown dull. It's grown too familiar. It no longer humbles you to know that God loves me. 
You see, God's response in our passage, um, but not like we expect again. I, I think the, the answer here, if you put this in anyone else's situation, a, a marriage or parents or anything of that nature, what you're going to find is uh, that there's some way of trying to prove the, the way that you have loved someone. He doesn't do that, though. He doesn't point out to them, you know, that, that he led them out of slavery in Egypt and brought them into the promised land and defeated all their enemies for them. He doesn't point back to David and Goliath and show the way he delivered them in that way. He, he could remind them even of the work that, that Nehemiah has been, been doing there and rebuilding the walls, and, and he doesn't. He doesn't even lay out the future details of his plans for them, right? Of salvation, that, that, listen, I've got this plan of redemption. I've been planning since before creation even existed, which will be accomplished in the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But God doesn't respond that way. You, you see his response here in verses 2 and 3. <clears throat> um, you see it there, right? We'll read it here in a second. But you've got to wonder, what does this have to do with anything? Um, what God says is, is not Esau Jacob's brother? Yes. Yet I have loved Jacob, and Esau I have hated. That's the response to how have you loved us. I, I, I can't imagine this will ever show up in a Hallmark card. Never. But this is the way God responds. It, it's just odd. So I want us to explore this a little bit and see if we can't make some sense out of this. Um, Israel, as we mentioned before, but uh, this was a name that God gave to Jacob back in Genesis thirty-two twenty-eight. God gives him this name. This name was then used to refer to Jacob's 12 children, 12 sons after him, and, and it was used to refer to the 12 tribes that were a result of those families multiplying. And so uh, Israel then becomes collectively known by this name that was originally just Jacob's name, uh, of God's people. Um, but again, what does Jacob really have to do with this? This is a long time ago. You, you may know the story of Jacob. He's a, a twin. Not an identical twin, but a fraternal twin. You might not know Travis is a uh, fraternal twin. I know Andrew is a twin. Are you fraternal or identical? Fraternal. He doesn't talk. Um, so when Jacob and his, his brother Esau were still in the womb uh, of their mother Rebecca, the Lord said to her, he actually gives this word, he says, Two nations are in your womb, and the two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. Esau is indeed born first, and Jacob is born right after him. And uh, it's recorded that uh, as, as he is born, he is grasping onto the heel of his brother Esau. And in fact, Jacob's name actually means heel grabber, um, creative, right? Uh, which later becomes this Jewish slang term for, for anyone who's cheating, scheming, you know, a, a shyster of any sort. They, uh, you know, that's, that's this idea, and this is one of those phrases that you can bring back, you can work this into your conversation this week, you know. When you're playing Monopoly, you might insist that, you know, while I go to the restroom, nobody heel grabs. And just see if they understand it. Um, anyway, you're, you're likely familiar with how Jacob trades his brother Esau this bowl of stew for his, his birthright. That's something of, of great value. And we read this and we tend to just think, wow, Esau was really foolish there. Why did he do that? That was not really smart. But, but do we ever think about the other side? What, what kind of a person finds their brother incredibly hungry, already has food available, and, and instead of just giving it to the brother, decides that they're going to trade them something of great value for that food? 
What I mean is, Jacob is not a particularly great guy. Okay, he's just not. He's very human. His sin is very obvious. Um, that's the kind of person Jacob is. So we have this, this question, does Esau deserve the love of God? We tend to be quick to say no. But, but then you ask the question, does, does Jacob deserve the love of God? The answer is no. You see, the, the objection, I, I know the objection to God's electing one person and not another person, is often this objection of fairness. And it helps if we understand that in the case of Jacob and Esau and every other situation, uh, <clears throat> fairness here would actually be to reject both Jacob and Esau. Because nothing Jacob does merits God's choice of him. And yet what we know from God's own words is that he does indeed choose Jacob. God makes this choice before Jacob was even born, in fact, which, which we read about earlier in Genesis 25-23. Uh, but the Apostle Paul also makes reference to this in, in that well-known chapter 9 of, of Romans. And, and starting in verse 10, uh, uh, the Apostle Paul says this, when, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Now, this may really bother you to hear. In fact, if this is the first time you've heard it, considered it, I, I'd be more surprised if it doesn't bother you. That is an absolutely normal response to this. But I believe the reason it bothers us so much is, is that we, we've come to believe we have some right to put um, some form of shackles on, on God and the way he works. We, we, we believe that he is absolutely required to love every single person equally. He just must, because he's God. And that's what we think God should do. We don't expect this of anyone else on the planet, or ever, right? Uh, children, you know, no matter what your age is, you, you wouldn't expect your parents to love all children on the planet equally to the way that they love you. Wives and, and husbands, you, uh, you know, you certainly expect your spouse to love you differently, to love you more than they love every other man or woman in their life, right? And so then what does, what does the love of God for Jacob look like after all this? Okay, He, he, he chooses Jacob, but what's it actually look like? And the first thing we need to know is God's love is not some mere fuzzy feelings like we think of the word today. Uh, you know, it's not just I, I feel fuzzies for my people. It was then, it still is today, about covenantal faithfulness. It is grounded in his sovereign and unconditional election of, uh, of his people. And in this sense, love means choice. It, it means a, a commitment. And don't lose what this means. That, that commitment means, can, can you imagine if someone told you and really meant this, someone told you, it doesn't matter what you do, where you've been, how bad you mess up, I am for you. I am for you and that will not change. I will continue to be for you. That's the kind of thing that we, we desire from a best friend. That's the kind of thing we look for in a, a spouse. But the only place we're ever going to truly experience that 100% is in the love of God for us. There. Now, on the flip side, we've got to ask this question that, you know, what about this hatred towards Esau? God's hatred of Esau, is, uh, you know, as God's own words put it here, is, is not some out of 
control, rage, anger sort of thing. Really, what it is, is is the opposite of this covenant commitment that God has given to Jacob, uh, to Israel, to all who are children of God by grace through faith. So so God's hatred of Esau, then, is is the absence of his steadfast love. It's the absence of his covenantal faithfulness. It's the absence of his commitment to be for them. It's, it's not so much blessings as it is curses, right? As we are finding the opposite here. God even explains what the results of this rejection for Esau, or for Esau is going to look like in verse 4. It says, I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. But that, that doesn't happen immediately in Esau's life. You see, that, that's many generations after Esau's life. Now, I, I probably should have mentioned this earlier, but just like Jacob is, is this, this representative for the nation of Israel, so Esau is this representative for the nation of, of Edom, which is mentioned in our passage here. We don't know as much about Edom, but uh, those are the nations that came down through their lineage. So um, let's consider what love looks like in the life of the heads of those two nations. So this might surprise you. Honestly, it surprised me when I began to look into this, but Jacob's life was actually harder than Esau's life. The one whom God loves life was actually more difficult than the one whom God hated. Um, see, after the, the, Jacob tricks his father and his brother, his, his mother has this fear. You know, your brother is going to kill you because of what you did. And not the way your mothers might think that, but really kill you was, was her fear. And so she sends him away for his own protection, and he has to <clears throat> go away from his homeland. He has to go away from his mother, his family. He's exiled to this, this faraway uncle of his, uh, Laban. And, and he's not a good uncle. That uncle then schemes Jacob, and Jacob keeps scheming him. Uh, but eventually, though, God calls Jacob back to the land that God has promised. And, and, and when he meets Esau on the way, we, we learn that during these many years apart, that Esau's life has been pretty good. Uh, you might remember the story. The, the two brothers are able to, to speak to each other. It's in Genesis 33, if you want to read it later. Um, and you might notice in that passage that Esau keeps telling Jacob, uh, uh, I don't need any material possessions, because Jacob's trying to you know, pacify any anger he might have. Uh, but he keeps saying, I don't need them. I don't need them. I have plenty. I have enough. His, his life has been fine. And, and yet in the same conversation, Jacob keeps telling Esau, I have much wealth, but he adds something to it. He doesn't just tell him that. He says, because God has dealt with me graciously. And it's nuanced there, but you, you see the difference between those two, right? Jacob's life was, was difficult, but he actually knows God. He encounters God, and he is known by the Lord. Esau, like, like many of our unbelieving friends, has a good and decent life. A lot of people would love to have that life, but he doesn't know the Lord. He's not loved by God. I mean, it's this strange answer of the Lord that we've been seeing here. Is it starting to make any sense to you yet? See, the the experience of this small remnant of of Israel is very similar to Jacob's experience individually. They, you know, exiles and frustrations. And, And as we understand this, Christian, what I really think we need to know is that God's love does not exempt us, does not exempt his covenant people from suffering. It just doesn't. See, today we live in a fallen and broken world. That much is absolutely true. 
But you do not walk through life alone. You, you know, you always go through life with our faithful God. He is always with us. He is always for us. Now, it, it might be that, that like Israel at this time, we can't see it in the day-to-day that God is actually for us. You know, we can't see the way that God is actually loving us. Just, just like a, a teenager, you know, might feel unloved by parents who have grounded her from her car. Or, or, uh, or another who's not allowed to go to a party that has no parental supervision is going to go till 2 a.m., you know. That's why won't I be allowed to do that? Or I'll tell you, when I was in the, the sixth grade, I, I broke my, my wrist playing football because I'm tough. Uh, it's actually soccer. It's British football. But I um, broke my wrist, and for whatever reason back then, uh, my parents didn't get me to a doctor quick enough, and so my arm began to heal, and it wasn't quite right. And I can remember the, the doctor telling me, we're going to have to re-break your arm so that we can put it back in the right spot, uh, and it's going to be very painful. So, you know, they gave me something to chew on. Or, no, I wasn't that long ago. Uh, and they gave me pain meds, but it was going to be incredibly painful. And I remember thinking in the moment, in, you know, fifth grader type terminology, that this guy, this man, cannot be for me. He absolutely is against me. Because he's going to use his strength, he's going to use his ability to cause me great pain on purpose. Pain that he doesn't have to cause me right now. And it was pain for sure, but he had a, a long-term plan for my, my healing. And I can use my wrist to find today. Um, I think sometimes God's love like that. Love's like that. Any, any pain that eventually drives you into the arm of the Lord has your eternal good in mind. Even if it truly is painful. See, let us not forget that the forgiveness of sin and the eternal redemption and our freedom to worship God for eternity is the end goal of God's love for his people. Edom, the the nation in the lineage of Esau, you know, uh, is said here in verse 4. It says this, it says, uh, the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. That is a scary, scary phrase if, if you really let it sink in. You know, that's a, a phrase, that there's no better way to spin it. That's a, a, a phrase of, of ultimate and eternal destruction, rejection. Now, I, I told you Israel that, uh, earlier that Israel is a, a small group at this point. I didn't tell you anything about Edom, though. Edom settled in the mountain area uh, of this place, and, and they avoided many of the exiles, many of the defeats. They had a, a pretty good existence for many time. They didn't go through the struggles that Israel went through. But eventually, Edom faced absolute and total destruction at the hands of the Babylonians. That's why you don't ever hear about Edom. You see, what, what God wants the people in Malachi's time to learn is the same thing that God wants you and I to learn here today, this very day, is that we do not evaluate the love of God for you based on the situations of your life. God does not love you more when things are going great than he does when things are going terrible. That's the truth. So you look at your life through the lens of the gospel that tells you God loves you even in the midst of suffering rather than assuming that God must not love you because you're suffering. And May we not make accusations to God regarding fairness when we see the wicked seeming to prosper, whether it be business, whether it be wealth, whether it be schemes, that they're absolutely scheming, and yet you see it it profit. Don't, Don't use those as accusations of God's injustice. 
You know, know that, that only, the only true hope in the world is to be loved by God. And if your faith is in Christ, you can rest assured that you are loved by God. Not because you're good, but because the Lord has chosen to love you. So the last verse here says, Your eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. And with that, we get this small, this very small peek at God's sovereign plan to include more than Israel in this covenantal love of his. To include Gentiles, that is, you know, non-Jews from every nation and tribe on this blue earth. See, God will set his love upon any he so desires. Now, if I know it's not in our nature, it, rather it is in our nature, I think, to want to be God on some level. We'd never admit that. Um, but we want to at least critique God. We, we, we want to, you know, have some statement about the way God does things. And we want election then to be based on something we understand. You know, just give me some standards so I can try to hit the mark. Give me a syllabus of some sort so I know what I'm aiming for. But, but, but God's love is, is freely given according to his own good pleasure. What I mean is nothing you've done caused God to love you. He, he loved you. And that has caused you to love him. See, God's grace is not contingent upon yours or any man or woman's work. It is according to his sovereign work of redemption. And that's the point of these five verses here. So when they ask God, how have you loved us? His answer, in short, is I chose you. I chose you and I am for you no matter what. And as his plan of redemption later unfolds, we, we learn this means he'll, he'll send his son Jesus to live among his people. It means that Christ will be the sacrifice for the forgiveness of the sins of, of Jacob and for all who by grace through faith believe the gospel. It means he'll fill us with the Holy Spirit. It means God prepares a home and a kingdom for a people. It, it means that he's opened your eyes to, to look on him and, and see him and trust him even when you're suffering. It means we have certain home that hope that one day we will no longer suffer, but dwell with God in the joy and absolute glory of his kingdom. You, you who are in Christ are loved because God has chosen to love you. God has chosen to love you. To, 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 to those of you who don't know the Lord, let me leave you with just the, these words of one of my seminary professions, uh, professors. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, he says this, he says, There is a living Savior who, because he died and rose again, is sufficient to save you. And indeed, each and every person who comes to him in faith, there is fullness of grace in Christ crucified, and you too may find salvation in his name. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, thank you for loving us with more than mere affection. Thank you for choosing us, for redeeming us by your grace. Lord, may we be confident in your love, even when the providence of our life gives strength to the doubt in our heart. You, Lord, are, are good. You are, you are mighty, and you have loved us with an eternal love that is secured not by the events we experience, but by the blood of Christ that was shed on our behalf. Thank you. I ask that you stir our hearts to be humbled and in awe that despite we are sinners, you have chosen to love us. We pray this in the name of Jesus.
Jesus our Lord. Amen.